Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The District. We are two days out from the election day in the midterms. I am Matt McDonald down here in Atlanta, Georgia, where we are going to a runoff election, meaning four more weeks of campaigning, voting, ads, and all that rigmarole. Joining me to discuss what happened on Tuesday are our editor-at-large, Ben Dominic, and our Washington editor, Amber Athey. So I want to start with a fairly open question, which is who was the most wrong out of the three of us in terms of what our pr- predictions and prognostications were? It was definitely me. It was absolutely <laughs> me. Uh, just again, I, I, I was totally wrong. And here's the thing. I was very much in the mainstream on the Senate predictions. I think the vast majority, actually, of, of uh, prognosticators predicted 53 in terms of the Republican pickups. Uh, Henry Olson at the Washington Post and EPBC predicted 54. Uh, A couple of people predicted 52, but it was mostly 53, and I was with that. But I was very, very bullish on the House chances, in part because I felt like Kevin McCarthy and, and the leadership team in the House recruited very well. They spent money very well. And they didn't have the disadvantages of many of these statewide candidates when it came to being an outsider who had never run for office before. It's one thing to run for a House seat as an outsider, somebody who you know is, is fresh to the political scene. It's another thing to run statewide as, you know, just to use one example, Tudor Dixon in uh, Michigan, she's, uh, you know, a pundit, somebody who'd been in kind of the Newsmax OAN world. Uh, clearly a talented communicator, but, you know, to jump to running for governor of Michigan from that, that's, uh, you know, that's a pretty hefty matzo ball. And so I think, you know, from my perspective, the, the house people were where it was at. And I thought that they would completely overperform that they would be in the high two forties or low two forties that they would, you know, achieve essentially the same thing that had been achieved in the uh, 2014 election under Obama uh, and previously, you know, in the Tea Party years and that kind of thing, I was completely wrong about that. And it's it's very disappointing to me because, frankly, I think those are the people who are being hit by an election that where they were not necessarily the person at fault. They they suffered from other things that were going on around them, you know, and, and there are a few exceptions to the rule. But just one example of this that is is front of mind for me. If you look at an election like uh, happened in Pennsylvania 17, that's the the whole sort of county ring around Pittsburgh where you have, uh, you know, the presence of a number of different, you know, suburban focused, focused people. It's Connor Lamb's old district, uh, who was obviously one of the more conservative Democrats. And you had a pretty radical progressive running at it who won. And that's not the kind of win that you should see in any kind of year where there is a right-leaning wave in any respect. So I think I was right and then wrong and then right again. (laughs) And let me explain. Um, And I think all of that balances out to making me just not anything, which is much preferred to being dead wrong. So (laughs) I wrote this piece for our magazine, I think, um, last month about how Republicans might be blowing the red wave. And it talked about a lot of the infighting surrounding the fundraising and the allocation of money and candidate selection. And it was 
basically making the case that the Senate is not going to be as easy as, as we think it's going to be. Well, then heading into election day, and this happens to me every single election, and I never learn anything. I just allow myself to get so excited and optimistic that I throw all like normal political prognostication out the window. And I'm just like, we're going to win everything. It's going to be a blowout. The Democrats are going to get destroyed. It's going to be awesome. Yesley Vega is going to win. Hung Cow is going to win. Neil Parrott's going to win. And Tudor Dixon's going to beat Gretchen Whitmer. (laughs) She lost by like nine points. Can I interject here, Uh, Amber? (laughs) I don't have this piece of paper right in front of me, but on the back of a piece of paper, I was at the other end of the table with Carl Rove at one end uh, on, on the Fox set on election night and he had his laptop and I didn't. So I was, you know, sort of relying on him to get the most update, you know, sort of information. And I wrote on the back of my piece of paper, cow up <laughs> and, then, and then held it up. To look at. And, and, he, and he looks at me and he, and he shakes his head. <laughs> and I was like, ah, damn it. <laughs> yeah, I know. No, I was way too optimistic and I allowed myself to get swept on, up into the excitement. And I was in North Carolina following Ted Budd's campaign and he did well. He won by three points. So um, I think the the mood down there maybe shifted my uh, perception a little well, bit of what was happening throughout the rest that. of the country. Can I ask you yes, about, please. About the Ted Budd outcome. The Ted Budd outcome is almost exactly what we would expect. Like it's a three to four point win, you know, for him in a, you know, not a tough state necessarily for Republicans, but a Republican advantage like plus two. And yet, of course, when the numbers come in, they are all the early vote numbers. And so people start freaking out because they're like, is Ted Budd not even going to win? And to me, this is kind of an indictment of the Republican approach to early voting because, look, we hate it. I am opposed to it just ideologically. I don't think it should be the kind of thing that it is. I think we should have an election day. And before that, you should have, you know, uh, absentee and that's it. Uh, but we are now in a in a situation where we have to live with this early vote phenomenon. I feel like Republicans just have to lean into it and basically accept that this isn't going away. Post-pandemic, this is the reality we have to deal with. We have to campaign and work the same as the Democrats do in order to get early vote out. Otherwise, the first thing that's going to show up on TV for all of our people is going to be us down by 25 points. Yeah, I think Florida is a good, a good state to look at for that, though, right? Because obviously, Florida had a very contentious you know, presidential election in 2000. They changed their system. They now pre-count votes. So there's like a, a lot, like as soon as polls close, they've got like a first batch, which this time around meant that they could call for DeSantis as early as they did. But that's also because, you know, they've, they've been in that system for, you know, the best part of two decades are adjust, And therefore, you know, it's not just Democrats who are adjusted to that system. Republicans are, too. And therefore that, you know, served to help DeSantis. Do you think that other states can kind of learn from that model? Definitely. I mean, look at what was going on in Arizona and Maricopa County with people having to wait extra long if they were able to cast their vote at all because they were having issues with the vote tabulation machines. If you had a lot of your voters voting early, then this wouldn't have been such a disadvantage for Republicans. So when you're looking at 
so much bureaucracy and so many errors that have happened, malicious or not, in the voting system, the earlier you can tabulate your vote and get it counted, and then if it's not counted, fix it before election day, that's just naturally an advantage. And trying to fix these things after the fact, once you're past November 8th or whatever the date is that the election date falls on, that's a problem. It's so much harder to do that, to retroactively say, oh, these votes should count than it is to fix it before you get to that point. And I think with the Maricopa thing, uh, correct if I'm wrong, Ben, obviously you know more about Arizona than I do, but wasn't that the, the system was that they don't, they didn't put enough ink in the printer. And so they had to turn up the dial to basically mean that the, the, the vote would print yeah. out so that it would register and tabulate. That was the, that was the issue, right? Which is like, not like I'm late for the airport, but now but I that can't sounds get like a 1993 <laughs> problem to me. Like, like what is wrong? It's absurd with us. It's absurd in this day and age. It is absurd, and I, I mean, I said this on Fox, but it is insulting to us as the exemplar of you know small R Republican values that we have to wait through and deal with these kind of multi day counts where things swing back and forth. We should know the results of an election within 48 hours, regardless. It should be over. We should know what it is. Instead, we're dealing with a scenario right now where Arizona and Nevada are both still out. We do not know what the shape is of the Senate, even as Herschel Walker is going out there and Raphael Warnock are going out there to campaign in your home state of Georgia. I assume it's your home now, Matt. You're just you're stuck there forever. Yeah. To figure out what's – it's like, is this going to decide the Senate? Is it going to be a plus one in terms of the Republican experience? Or is it going to be just holding serve in terms of getting the 50? We don't even know that. That's ridiculous. It's great that like two, I think $271 million has already been spent on that Senate race. And now they're kind of umming an iron and be like, we don't know how much more money we need to waste on this. Like – is it because it's either going to down here, it's either going to be a vote to you know decide the Senate and basically restore the kind of 50 50 balance, or it's a it's a I mean, from a democratic side, it's to basically nuke Joe Manchin so that you don't have as many like contentious votes. It basically means that you know it, it basically kind of it, it kind of neuters like the Manchin cinema effect because obviously Warnock Warnock basically votes with Biden like a lot of the time in the Senate. I um curious as well obviously this a circular firing squad is already kind of taking place within the republican party right now uh in terms of who is to blame for republican underperformance a number of people are blaming president trump and candidate quality a number of people are blaming kevin mccarthy uh you know basically i, I presume I presume like a lack of message clarity uh, as, as like one of the major factors people are blaming mcconnell for not backing like certain candidates so for example you know obviously there was the fundraising spat between mcconnell and peter Thiel as it relates to well also and spending and spending money in places like alaska yeah uh, yeah but so he, he put money behind uh, helping mccaskey beat kelly shabaka right that's right and then rather than on a, a more competitive race I mean, there's been a lot of stupid spending this cycle. The seventh highest fundraiser for the House was Marcus Flowers, who lost by, I think, 30 points against Marjorie Taylor Greene. I'm wondering if, is it, my perspective on this is, I kind of think they're all right, as in every single, like, every finger that's being pointed uh, at, like, 
at another Republican. Like there's a ju- there's like a, a justification to it, which kind of just all adds up to, uh, I guess, like the you could you, if you want to put it down to one thing, it's just like the vacuum at the top of the Republican Party, right? Because Trump uh, Trump vacated, but then like was kind of. He he left he left stage and then was just shout, shouting directors back directions back at the remaining actors on it, and so you've got that pulling it in a direction. And the the successes on the Republican side were governors who could say, "In my state, I stand for this," and then you know Kemp wins and uh, DeSantis wins. But there wasn't like a national a cohesive national message in twenty twenty two. Is that a fair assessment? Or so so let me go first so that so that uh, Amber has the capability to call me a rhino and and sell. <laughs> I don't know. We might be closer to agreement on this one than you think. I think we actually are because you're smart. So uh, (laughs) here's what I think. There's a lot of blame to go around. I don't think Kevin McCarthy is immune to that blame. I would say that his his agenda was pretty piss poor and he did not have kind of a coherent alternate agenda in terms of inflation and a lot of the issues that people care about. However... I think that McCarthy recruited really pretty well. The people on paper look really good as candidates. And he spent money, I think, pretty wisely. On the flip side, I think McConnell recruited almost no one. And you ended up with a recruitment that was basically managed by Donald Trump. And then afterwards, McConnell sort of adjudicated who he spent money on in this schizophrenic mean girl way, which was very weird. Like he spent money millions of dollars against Don Bolduc. And then he spends millions of dollars for Don Bolduc. And then Don Bolduc says something negative about him and he pulls the money. Like that does, this doesn't make sense. Like if you want the majority, you should spend money for this guy, even if you don't like him, you know, because you want the, the number of R's that will get you to a majority. McConnell didn't do that. McConnell, I think is in this war with Rick Scott, who, whether you think he's smart or not, and I have my issues with the agenda that he laid out. I think Scott basically was of the mindset that like, hey, if if Trump, a Trump back candidate is going to win the nomination, I need to be all in for him. And that's what the NRC, NRSC kind of did. They they went in, you know, with a lot of money for all these candidates. The problem, I think, is that the Trump influence is a negative. And when what I say, what I mean by that is actually not what, I think most people in the media mean. I think Trump in 2016, by dint of his success, and uh, you know whether you credit it to good fortune or not, he won by being a political outsider. And I think there are all these political outsiders who then took the lesson that, like, I can win too. Doctor Oz is a perfect example of that. He looks at he looks at Trump and he's like, I can win too. I can jump into this. I don't. I don't have to run for any lower office. I can jump in, run for Senate and succeed. But he's going against a guy in Fetterman who, despite the fact that he's, you know, completely brain addled at this point, sadly, he's won statewide before he's gotten elected statewide before he, he has proven success politically and Oz has none. And he thinks that he can just jump in and, and, and do this. Uh, you know, I think that the, the a lot of the blame that has to be laid at the feet of these various people in Washington should go to the people who made poor judgments when it came to spending money. And top of the list for me is is Mitch McConnell. 
because spending money in Alaska, spending money in so many of these other you know contests where he did, you know, pulled things away from other re- you know resources were just not well allocated. You come out at the end, four hundred billion dollars basically, you know, give or take, is is spent to get this. I just can't believe that that's a wise you know a group of resources, and you know the other thing is that. McConnell for for all of this is you know he's been around for so long he doesn't want to leave he's probably going to be pushed out within the next 2 to 4 years and i think that you know his animosity toward anyone who is in any way critical of him you know proved to be a detriment you know look i wish that someone like JD Vance would be able to win without having to turn to national republican money for support because I think that he probably, honestly, he probably would have won anyway. But I do think that this is a scenario where the people in Washington made money-based decisions that ultimately harmed their party, harmed their ability to win, and put money in the wrong places when they should have put it in ones that were more competitive. Yeah, I agree with most of that. I even sort of initially defended Mitch McConnell back in August because the criticism that was floating around at the time was that he was pulling money from Blake Masters because he had this petty disagreement. And the response to that was kind of like, okay, but why would he dump the money into Ohio when J.D. Vance is sort of the same type of candidate as Blake Masters? But in retrospect, J.D. Vance won by seven points. So when you talk to you know pollsters and Republican consultants who were actually following that race, they're refrain is this was never going to be really close. It was not a toss up like the media and and the liberal pollsters were claiming that it was going to be. So now it's like, okay, well, so Mitch McConnell put the money there. Why? He certainly knew that the race was not going to be as close as the left claimed it would. And instead he took it away from Blake Masters, who could have actually presumably performed much better with that money. So it just didn't make any sense. And then on the Trump question, I think my biggest problem with Trump right now is that his litmus test for endorsing candidates is not based on loyalty to ideology. It's based on loyalty to person. And that's not how you win a statewide race. The reason that Trump performed so well in 2016 was because he did have a coherent ideology that appealed to working class voters. And now he throws out endorsements based on whether or not someone champions his 2020 election fraud narrative, as opposed to whether or not they adhere to America first ideals. That's how you end up with a candidate like Dr. Oz, who frankly didn't have a coherent message and never was able to prove himself as an independent man with a real political ideology. Amber. (laughs) Right. Right. Like he, he, he didn't have, I I still don't know who he is as a politician because he was just all over. And I've talked to him like a dozen times on the phone and I still don't know. (laughs) I mean, even on something as basic as the uh, uh, pro-life abortion message, he gave like four or five different answers throughout the campaign and failed to adequately explain how he shifted his position so quickly over a number of years. Which in, which in Pennsylvania, it doesn't, the other factor is it doesn't give you a reason to split your ticket. Because like, what if you don't like Doug Mastriano, for example, but you're like, oh, you know, I'm going to assess all of these. Like, you, I don't think if you, if you aren't clear on like on, and aren't speaking to people then like there's no reason for you to think well if, if the the people who are swing voters are going down and like voting for each side 
they've got to look at something and be like, oh yeah, that's what he's for. Right. No, exactly. So Oz isn't going to somehow majorly outperform Mastriano because he hasn't independently proven himself as a good candidate. And then, you know, just talking to people in Florida who are huge Trump supporters, typically, they're really mad about what Trump said about DeSantis. DeSantis is their hero. He's their champion. And again, it's getting caught up in the petty loyalty, personal loyalty test, as opposed to whether or not someone is actually delivering for their constituents. And that really pissed a lot of people off. And I think Trump is really underestimating how mad that made his base because the base, frankly, they love DeSantis. They really do. And they should. They're wise to love him. Yes. So the the thing that I was obviously on the on the Fox News election night coverage, and I can uh, tell you off air all the different green room gossip, but the the main thing that happened was that about midnight or so, Britt Hume got tired and he came out and he kind of clapped me in. And so I spent like two hours on set, which I did not expect because we were all rotating through. And then we had this kind of final commentary at the end at like 2.15 in the morning. And I got to go last. And the thing that I said was, look, keep two things in your mind. Populism and normalcy. People want a more populist conservative agenda. That's clear. It's been clear for multiple election cycles. This is what they want, okay? But they also want normalcy, competence, clear sort of a directed ability to like run government. And so it's like, look at DeSantis and it's, and he's he's a counter puncher. He's clearly not, you know, some, uh, you know, uh, shrinking violet when it comes to, you know, cultural war issues or anything like that. But he also can build a bridge in three days. And that's the thing that people want. They want both the populism and that kind of confidence in your leadership. And until Republicans understand that you need both of those things, you can't just be one, that is going to be a major detriment for them. Because all of these candidates, I would argue, who lost in these statewide elections, they got that first part. They got the like, populist message. Sure. But you didn't deliver any kind of confidence that you would be able to run things, you know, in any kind of way. And I think that was a huge detriment to them. I've got one final question, which kind of ties to what Ben's just said. Obviously, we've, we've talked at length about last Tuesday. Let's have a quick final word on next Tuesday, which is the 15th, uh, when Donald Trump claims he's making a special announcement. I suppose my question is, and this is to both of you, if you're one of the advisors who Donald Trump still listens to now, what are you advising that he do ahead of, you know, 2024 and even ahead of next week? Well, it's easier to say it when you're not in that position and you don't have to worry about getting shit canned. But am I allowed to say that on this podcast? I think I am. Um, you did. It's okay, fine. great. You can edit it out <laughs> if they don't like it. But um, but yeah, I mean, when you don't have to worry about getting fired. I agree with Lieutenant Governor Winston Sears in Virginia. It's time to move on. Trump has been unable to advance past the personal scores that he wants to settle. And I actually, I, I understand his, his motivation and his desire to do that. I do think the guy has been wronged a lot of times. I mean, his entire 
presidency was marred and distracted by the phony Russia allegations and investigations and all of this other nonsense from the media and from the left and even from infighting within his own party. So yeah, the guy was treated unfairly. That sucks. But life isn't always fair. And if you're not going to win anymore, if you're not going to be the kingmaker anymore, and if your fighting is relegated to fighting with your own side, it's just, it's not helpful anymore. Um, So that's kind of where I'm at on this whole thing. My advice would be, obviously, to wait. I think that Trump can wait as long as he wants. He could come in eight to 10 months from now, clear the field, and dominate the presidential stakes. But I agree with Amber. I think it's I, I think that this election clearly shows it's time to move on from this guy. We need to move on from the boomers generally. They've just done such a terrible job of running this country. And their generation is just so narcissistic and does not have the forward-looking vision that we need for this country. Look, I'm I'm willing to, you know, look at a lot of this different stuff, you know, in in 2020 hindsight and say that, you know, Donald Trump, his presidency was good for the country, especially when it came to judges and nominations and all these other things. That was good. Great. That's fine. We need to move on. We can't have this kind of old generation continuing to run things forever. And I think that once we do move on, we'll be surprised to find how much better things work for ourselves, for the country for everybody who's interested in this. And, uh, you know, I'm just looking forward to that day if it ever comes. <laughs> yeah. Obviously you, you two both have the kind of caveat that you've got to think about what's good for America. Whereas I'm just thinking of what is good for the magazine. So, I mean, we'll see what happens on uh next. Well, let me just, let me sure, throw I'm one sure more we'll thing read. in just because I think it's important. Okay. I obviously am some jerk sitting in Arlington, Virginia, who writes about politics for a living. If the base decides that they want Trump in 2024, I will support that decision. It's so freeing to not have to support anything that anybody does within either <laughs> two parties, because I, I am supportive and a dues paying member of a party that exists entirely to be a spoiler for everyone else. And just being the, the <laughs> you know, the, the grenade in the, in the punch bowl is very fun. <laughs> You're a libertarian? <laughs> yes. A dues paying member since 2006. That's horrible. How That's so horrible. <laughs> On that, on that high note, I think we'll end. Ben, Amber, thanks very much. Uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll speak again in uh, the not-so-distant future. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of The District, don't forget to subscribe. You can find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Spectator World is the American edition of the world's oldest magazine. To read more content on similar topics, please visit spectatorworld.com. <laughs>